Welcome to the podcast, People of the Book. I'm your host, Meryl Ain. We're proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. We chat with authors and storytellers in thought-provoking and intimate interviews, all with a Jewish twist. Today, we're in conversation with Jennifer Rosner, the author of Once We Were Home. Before we begin, I have a special announcement from Hadassah, the Women's Zionist Organization of America, of which I'm proud to be a life member. Hadassah's one book, One Hadassah, upcoming program on Thursday, April 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, will feature an interview by Hadassah's executive editor, Lisa Hostein, with Pam Jenoff, author of Codename Sapphire. The program is free on Zoom and open to everyone. Set during World War II, it focuses on three compelling women and was inspired by true stories of resistance during the war. It's filled with complex family relationships and betrayals. To register for this event, go to events.hadassah.org org backslash code name sapphire on today's program i'm delighted to welcome jennifer rosner jennifer is the author of the novels once we were home and the yellow bird sings a national jewish book award finalist in debut fiction and book club and a massachusetts book award honor book Her other books include the memoir, If a Tree Falls, A Family's Quest to Hear and Be Heard, and the picture book, The Mitten String, a Sidney Taylor Book Award notable. Jennifer's short writings have appeared in the New York Times, the Times of Israel, the Forward, and elsewhere. In addition to writing, Jennifer has taught philosophy. She holds a PhD from Stanford University and a BA from Columbia. She lives in Western Massachusetts with her family. So welcome, Jennifer. Thank you so much. As I told you, I just think your new novel, Once once we were home is a gorgeously written poignant book which really it just touched me on 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 a very uh profound level thank you thank you that means a lot so to begin with why don't you give our listeners a brief summary of once we were home for those who haven't read it yet sure um so this novel in essence is about children who are taken from a place of home and um, and their struggles thereafter with identity, belonging, and um, faith and many other things as they try to reroute after some ruptures. So there are four different characters and I weave their storylines. Oscar and Anna are a sibling pair who whose parents have had to stow them with a Catholic family during the Holocaust and um, the parents perish and after the war an operative um, for the redemption of Jewish children 
comes to remove them and try to re reclaim them back into Judaism. And they end up, um, you know, having kind of different reactions to that uh, taking away from this new family right. that they've mm -hmm. um, rooted back into. Um, and then um, there's a character, Roger, who is, um, he has been put in a convent for safekeeping and also his parents perish. But when living relatives do come to claim him, the church actually takes him on the run, trying to get him to stay within Christianity. And then finally, Renata is a character who is taken um, first from her Polish family uh, to be Germanized. And then when uh, there's a repatriation effort, um, her adoptive German mother takes her on the run. So these children are sort of being moved around, often according to adult um, ideologies uh, or religions or conceptions, nationalists, etc., um, about what uh, would be best for the child or for, for some other purpose. And the children themselves, I try to stay within their points of view as they grapple with, um, you know, sort of the the aftermath of all this moving around. Yeah, well, you you do a wonderful job of that. We're going to get to that in a little while. Uh, I just wanted to mention that I recently reread <laughs> your award-winning debut novel, the, the Yellow Bird Sings, which is also an amazing book. And I'm Wondering, Jennifer, um, what was the impetus that inspired you to tackle the issue of hidden children during the Holocaust? Well, I first, um, I, I in in the intro you gave, thank you so much for that. I, um, you mentioned that I wrote a memoir called "If a Tree Falls," which is about deafness in our family and, um. I was actually giving a book talk for that for that memoir, and I was talking about how our children who um, we eventually gave hearing technology and actually not eventually right immediately um, they got hearing technology and we were encouraging them to make sound um, and spoken like you know to speak uh, aloud and I was in a at a book talk sort of saying how much we were encouraging our children to to make sound and a woman in the audience described her experience as a child having to stay completely silent and still in this shoemaker's attic with her mom for like 24 months and i think it was the juxtaposition of you know thinking about what a mother as, as one mother trying to get their children to, to to talk and then another mother having to get her child to be completely silent and thinking about the children themselves having to be silenced and or encouraged to talk, you know, this kind of juxtaposition of our lives. I just, I don't know, I couldn't stop thinking about that woman and her mom. And I ended up interviewing her. And then from her, I met many other hidden children and learned all these different stories of hiddenness. And um, I think it's also probably true that the concept of hiddenness was very interesting to me too, because as I had been exploring deafness in our family, there were these ancestors who had been in some sense, really shunted away as deaf people were, um, you know, in the 1800s, etc. And so I don't know, it touched me very deeply on a variety of levels. And um, I started like developing this story after listening to so many different stories of hidden children, I set them all aside. But and I developed my own story, but I had sort of been marinating in their stories for a long time. And all the kind of innovation and ingenuity and strength and the ways in which they went on, you know, in these really difficult circumstances and the way they stayed connected to each other. So, yeah, that that's that's fascinating. Thank you for that. So, you know, as I as I read reread um the Yellow Bird Sings, um that 
that's about a hidden child as well. Did did you, um, you know, once we were home, is it's not a sequel, but did you know that you were going to uh, write this book afterwards, or did did writing the Yellow Bird Sings um, inspire you to write another book uh, in more detail about this topic? Well, while I was interviewing people for the Yellowbird Sings, I, I was talking to some a man who said to me, you know, you should talk to my wife. She has a story that's more interesting than mine. And the wife's story was this situation after the war, which is really what Once We Were Home is about. So this woman in like 1946 and 1947, she worked as an operative as for what they called the redemption of Jewish children. So she had been in a Siberian labor camp she came back to her native Poland and just 3% of children were alive, Jewish children were still alive. And most of them were hidden in Christian settings with assumed identities. And this mission developed to try to reclaim them, to get them back into Judaism, to repopulate this lost collective. And she joined that operation and described what she did. And I was just, I was, um, you know, I was really, um, taken, you know, I did, her story was unbelievable. Like I had never heard of anything like this where people went into the, you know, they went to the Christian homes, they would try to offer money, but if they said no, sometimes they would just take the children and they felt it was like a moral imperative to get the children back into Judaism, both because all so many Jews had been lost and also because they felt it was like honoring the dying wishes of their parents. You know, it was like to leave descendants and everyone kind of understood that when the Jewish parents stowed their children for safety in Christian homes, it's not that they meant for them to grow up Christian. They they meant that to come back and bring them back into, into their faith. And so there was this real push to try to get those children back. And I think also there was a feeling that Poland just wasn't safe for these Jewish children, even if they were in a Christian home that was loving and righteous, et cetera. Um, there were neighbors and denouncers and stuff. And even though the war was over, anti-Semitism was raging. And so there felt, you know, a lot of them really felt like they shouldn't leave, just leave these kids behind. So that whole history kind of opened up to me when I met this woman and talked about it. And then from there, I found this historian in Israel who had interviewed almost, I think it sounded like almost every operative who had worked in these organizations to redeem Jewish children and found this really interesting mix of re I don't know, retrospective evaluation of the program. So like at the time they were all you know, convinced of its, of its um, morality, its righteousness. And then later, some of them really felt, especially after they followed the children that they had moved, that they had kind of, they wondered if it was worth it psychically for those children who had been really bonded with their Christian mm -hmm. families and you know had also lost their original Jewish family to be moved again. And they weren't being moved like, back to their family or, you know, they were moved into a children's home or, you know, transport from here to there until finally they got to a kibbutz. So, you know, it wasn't coming back home, you know, but it and was being many going to and Israel. Some of those children adjusted. So, yeah. Yeah. It was so, it, it was so uh, far away. Um, that it's so uh, interesting because it, I just didn't know anything uh, about this topic, so I certainly um, thank you uh, for bringing it to light and and in such a beautiful um, lyrical way. Uh, do, I'm just curious. Uh, do you have an opinion about about this? I mean, you certainly raise the issue, and you leave you leave the reader 
wondering um, about the Jewish organizations that sought to recover the children? Yeah, I mean, so I saw it as a really blurry thing, um, you know, because of the tension there between wanting to, you know, reconstitute Judaism versus what would be best for each individual child. And one thing I was really struck by was, you know, the Jews were persecuted as Jews, you know, no one asked, you know, are you observant? You know, <laughs> um, right. there was nothing sort of specific. It was like, as Jews, you were taken you know, to a concentration camp or whatever. Um, and some of them and, didn't even identify with Jews as Jews, or they had, you know, a, a, a Jewish grandparent or two. So, yeah. Exactly. As So as Jews, they were persecuted. And then what I found sort of startling by about the whole thing was that then in the reclamation effort, the children were just reclaimed as Jews. Like no one wondered, you know, is this child really bonded to this home? And is are they close and, you know, happy, intimate or whatever with this new family? I mean, it was just like as Jews, we had lost everyone and you're coming back with us. And so that really struck me. And I guess I should say you know, this question about of, of adults and other people sort of deciding where and with whom a child belongs, you know, also cut very close to the bone for us, for me, because, you know, as a hearing parent of deaf children, when um, when we were making our decisions about how to raise our, our children, um, you know, we got the opinion like, you know, they should be raised by deaf people. You shouldn't, you shouldn't oh my raise goodness. them. And oh, I mean, no. I wrote an article for how, the New York How Times. dare they? You must have thought, how, how dare they? It was, it was shocking, but it's a pretty fringe view, but it still was a view we encountered that, you know, hearing parents shouldn't be raising deaf children. Deaf children should be raised with the deaf. And, and you know, it, like I said, it's, it's not, I mean, there are many people on every side, you know, who think that everyone should just do what's best for their family and raise their children, you know, however they can you know however best they can um but i did hear it and i was so startled by it and then to hear of these different cases of children being moved around on account of like their so in our case it was like wait so our child who you know our children both daughters you know so they have you know damaged cilia in their ear or you know you know this is why i shouldn't mother my child and the idea that you know because they're jewish they should be there because you want them to be christian they should be here and no one's asking like who are they close to and where should you know where are they bonded and whatever so i think that there were these psychological drivers that really animated it for me so that you know i was brought to my desk every day because it yeah. was and, yeah, yeah you really you know you really um put yourself into the into the hearts and and heads of these children and i think you know you also made the point uh, as in the case of Oscar and his sister it really mattered at at what age they were taken Oscar Oscar didn't have any memory um of his biological parents uh whereas his sister did so um can we talk talk about Oscar a little bit and um, how you came to write so movingly about him at, at both as a child and an adult. Yeah, thank you so much for making that point because it was really important to me that people understand that the child's reaction, they that there were so many different reactions and that a lot of it did depend on sort of the age of the child, the memory, if they really recalled their Jewish roots, if they felt that they were somehow honoring their parents, you know, it was sort of a different experience to be taken back into Judaism. For but for someone like Oscar, who was three when he was moved into this, 
you know, Christian home. It was the only home he remembered, only home he knew, and he felt very attached there and grounded there. And, um, and so it was a totally different experience for him to be taken. Um, and I mean, about him, I don't know. I mean, it's so interesting, like, you 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 come to think of writing a novel and maybe you have sort of large themes in mind but for me i start at the very ordinary so you know i have this boy who likes to whittle or uh, you know and what does the the wood smell like you know as it's drifting up you know um you know and it's kind of very um sensory and kind of quotidian i guess is maybe you know it's just this everydayness even when big things are happening in the in history and in in someone's life or you know even in the course of being hidden during a war i mean a child gets up and sits in a chicken coop and then you know comes back and you know they have lunch and and so i don't know i guess i developed my work in that way like what happened that morning and then and then what happened you know and so it's it's coming from there even though these large things are happening um in the novel sort of um more i don't know globally but then there's like the the child's point of view and um you know their day-to-day -day life and i don't know oscar just kind of came i just i don't know i came he came to me and i i loved him and <laughs> oh, you could tell i mean he you know what what stays in my mind when um they first come um to the Christian family and she gives them milk and they haven't had milk and how milk becomes so precious to them. And then the cow is taken away. I, 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 beautiful. Just your, your writing is so beautiful and, and so moving. Uh, so uh, I want to talk a little bit also about Roger because um, I think you uh, channeled the philosopher in you uh, when you were <laughs> when you were crafting Roger. That's right. true. That's true. I did, and it kind of enabled me to get someone actually asking some of the questions that you know, would get to the struggle with identity and belonging and, you know, a feeling of home. Yeah, so um, you you obviously um, did meticulous research. Um, I'm, I'm wondering um, how long it took you to research this um, and, and what, how you went about researching this topic. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I feel like I almost have to think about my research for once we were home and the yellow bird sings together because you know from from the time I had the idea for the yellow bird sings to the time it was a published book it was something like 10 years and a lot of that had to do with traveling to Poland and um you know interviewing all those hidden children and you know consulting with masterclass violinists and all kinds of other people mushroom foragers <laughs> etc and um you know all that all that really did kind of form a foundation for once we were home which you know came much quicker so that book took you know by i think it was about a year and a half it's much much faster but it really depended on me having been grounded in a certain way in in poland and in the history you know of the war etc and so you know for once we were home in particular i feel like the research i did was um 
you know, after learning about this, you know, the op the operation for the redemption of Jewish children, you know, working with this scholar in Israel who not only wrote an amazing book called Dividing Hearts, um, that's quite quite a lot about this topic. Um, she she actually read my manuscript. Someone in someone um, translated it into Hebrew for her, and then she gave me all these different comments and the person translated those back to English for me. So we were in consultation. She read the novel um, very carefully and not only, you know, helped me with the historical veracity, but, you know, even the journey that Oscar and Anna take from one part of Poland to part of Bavaria to Marseille, et cetera. I mean, their journey follows the exact journey of one of the operatives in history, you know, how the, the route they took. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that, you know, was was a very valuable experience. I also worked with a few others, like a historian, um, also in Israel and one in in um, the UK, to talk about sort of child trauma and memory issues in the Holocaust and all this sort of thing, psychological issues in the Holocaust. And um, I went to Jerusalem. I went all around Israel, actually, you know, to to see kibbutzim, to understand the landscape of archaeological progressions, because I set um, Renata's situation is in 1968, and she's a visiting um, Oxford archaeologist. And because of the changing borders in 67, there were issues about whether she would have been there. And, you know, everything had to be, you know, sorted out. And um, so there was a lot of research uh, in this novel. And, and I'm also interested in your, in your writing, uh, process. Do you do all the research and then start writing or, um, do you start writing and, and where do you write? Yeah. You know, how, how often do you write? I, I'd like to hear a little bit about that. Thanks. Well, also, I really do feel that every project seems to be different, which is disconcerting sometimes like <laughs> you you realize you're starting a new one and occurring in a completely different way than the last one so right. um, but in this case you know after having heard that woman's story i just started writing like the oscar and anna storylines and i hadn't even you know i hadn't even understood that there was going to be a roger storyline or a renata storyline until i don't know i had already written something like 100 pages of oscar and anna and then realized i think i wanted these other threads and you know, a gentle convergence and all this stuff. So it was a combination of sort of, I had had this idea, I did a bit of research, then I started writing, and then I was trying to dig deeper. So it was kind of a back and forth, um, you know, one, as I stalled in the writing, I went to do research, as I learned more about the research, it enriched the writing, you know, it was like that. And um, the other thing that happened in this particular process is that these storylines in a way happened in chunks. Like I've heard of people who write braided stories literally in the chronology that a reader would read them, mm -hmm. but that isn't how I worked. I mean, I had to try to figure out Renata on her own, sort of not, not really start to finish, but at least a, for a chunk of time, I needed to get her up and running. And I needed the same for Roger, especially because those two chap, you know, those two sections had come later in my mind. So, so there were times when I was, you know, just creating longer swaths of <laughs> of narrative and then thinking about how to feather them together and how should they intersect. And, you know, I wanted the intersection of their lives to be really subtle, especially because I think in Israel, <clears throat> so many people with shared histories, even though they never talk about it, 
exist together. So you may go into someone's shop and just buy, you know, a, a carved box and you wouldn't say anything, but the two of you both had some kinds of shared experiences. And I think that's really interesting. And, um, and so it was a very gentle intertwining, at least in some of the cases and a little less gentle, you know, more, more direct intertwining in others. But so that was one thing. And then with, with once we were home, well, with each book, so the yellow bird sings took so long, but also my children were much younger and my dad was quite sick and there was a lot of life that was intervening. And then when I was writing once we were home, my kids were, well, it was the pandemic and I actually rented an office in town. It was like right above a little bookshop in, in mm -hmm. Northampton and I would walk into town and I would write in the office and then I'd come back because I, you know, everyone was home. And, um, right. and that actually really helped. I don't have that office anymore and I, I, I miss it. <laughs> Um, I'm uh, sure it, was, you <laughs> it was actually really quite lovely. What and, a great uh, idea. <laughs> it, it was a great idea. Um, and I don't know, now we, you know, we moved back to a house we had built years ago and we're in the woods and driving to an office makes no sense, especially because we have the space and our kids are in college. Mm. But there is something about leaving your house that that's quite helpful, I think. But and now in this new, uh, I'm working on a new project, which is very, very beginning stage. But I found that in terms of process, gosh, I can't even write it while sitting at a computer. I have to be taking walks and like taking little notes in my phone. Like I, it's really a different okay. process where I feel like I can't seem to write unless I'm moving, which is really, it was very inconvenient in the dead of winter. I was like, it's I would think out there. so. <laughs> I don't, don't want to go out there, but, um, but I wasn't really having any ideas sitting home at my desk. So I would try to go for a little walk in the woods and then usually ideas came. And so that's been interesting. Well, keep, keep getting these, those ideas and, and keep writing them. Uh, as, as I said, you, you are a magnificent writer and I, I just really adore this book. Now, major theme in it is the meaning of family. Uh, what did you want readers to come away with after reading it? Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. <clears throat> I mean, I think that in a way, what was on my mind was this connectivity and isn't that what makes a family? And, um, you know, I shared with you that, you know, that kind of odd, you know, experience, you know, about having deaf children. But the other thing that I had learned of our, these ancestors I spoke of who were from the 1800s was that uh, though they were kind of shunted away in this little shuttle, they, they, um, when they had babies of their own, they tied strings from their wrists to their babies at night so that when the babies would cry or fuss in the darkness, they would feel a tug on their wrist and they would wake up to care for their children. And, you know, to me, this was such an incredible, like, model of listening and of connecting and mothering. And I used that string sort of through the yellow bird sings where Shira has this string instrument, the violin, and she's sending her songs out into the world, hoping to, you know, hoping that her mom will hear them. And then in, um, in once we were home, I think it's similar, like the idea that, you know, Oscar stays connected to the Dabrowski's and maybe touches the, you know, the root of a tree and hopes that root to root 
it gets traveled, you know, that, that his, his love and, and oh, you know, so, all his feelings so poignant, very, and very poignant. Yeah. So I guess I feel about family that the thing I'm saying is, you know, that we really need to look at where children are connected and bonded. And, you know, the fact that we move children around, not just in this history of the war, but, you know, there, this is happening. People are, you know, people, whatever, the Russians are taking Ukrainian children in the courts. There are issues of, you know, a child is in, you know, adopted by a white family, but the tribe would like her back. And there are all these different cases where we're talking about children and where they should go. And, you know, according to some conception or ideology. And I just think I'm taking the child's point of view. I'm team child or something <laughs> where, you know, the child belongs where they feel connected and we have to listen to that or they're going to be damaged or, you know, struggling. So how, how, do, I mean, you do such an outstanding job of getting into these children's heads. How did you take the child's point of, I mean, how were you able to do that? I don't know. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I think, um, you know, I try to, you know, give myself the challenge of what you'd call the close third point of view where you're almost like the camera behind their eyes mm -hmm. and trying to look at the world, you know, from from their perspective and how they would see it. And, you know, each of them is they, they are very different people with kind of different um, I don't know. Yeah, they're just they're very different. They have different sensibilities. And I think that in some sense helped me that, you know, I saw I saw Oscar as very kind of rooted to the to wood and to the ground and watching the birds and he was in nature in a certain way and Roger was really in his head like an intellectual mm -hmm. child who was asking questions all the time and wondering and couldn't quite keep his questions to himself and what where that led and then um, you know, I think Anna and Anna's a complicated girl because she's so torn and is feeling her loyalties, you know, pulled where if she does get attached to the Dabrowski's is that somehow disloyal to her parents, even though her parents put her there, you know, um, yeah, so right. she was struggling with her, you know, her, her heart. And then she also had the obligation to watch her brother and it was hard to be a child for Anna. And so she had a lot of complex psychology and um, and then Renata, it's an interesting situation because, you know, so much of her history is secret to her and I'm kind of, you know, she's sort of, you know, digging for uh, the, his, you know, secrets of the universe except her own and, um, and, you know, I needed to get some of her past into the novel and ended up, you know, needing to the only other being that had witnessed what had happened to Renata was the little doll she had in her pocket or in her hand all the time. So, you know, I ended up having to kind of go through that point of view as well, a Matryoshka doll. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, I guess then, you know, sometimes I once heard, you know, what an architect say something like, you have to, you have to locate the windows from inside the house, like when you're designing, <laughs> you um, you know, you have to be from the inside. You can't sort of stand outside and decide where the windows go, mm -hmm. you know. And um, I've thought about that as a writer, you know. Um, mm -hmm. I have to be kind of inside the, the, the character and inside the story to understand the movements of it. And, um, and, and I try to do that. Well, you, you write so, so lyrically and so beautifully. When did you first decide 
you wanted to be a writer. And do you want to tell us a little bit about some of your earlier writing? <laughs> Thanks. I mean, I came to it really late, I guess, because I wasn't one of those people who knew when they were six that they wanted to be a writer. I, I wish I did know. Um, but I had, I had been in academia. I was, you know, a philosopher and that writing actually is kind of painful. And it's very, at least the one I was in very analytic philosophy where every move is so logic bound and, um, and, um, it was a bit torturous, honestly, and I didn't love writing. And then when our first daughter, Sophia was born and we got her diagnosis of deafness right at birth, um, at some point I just started journaling and I, um, you know, I found it so nourishing. I had never done journaling before, but I just had to try to figure out my feelings and thoughts and worries and everything. You know, I just needed to put something somewhere and I loved it so much. I couldn't believe that you could do that. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, um, and eventually these snippets from journaling about our children, like became part of the memoir, um, If a Tree Falls, which ended up also being this woven story of, of, you know, the our two deaf daughters who are sisters and then these two sisters in the 1800s that I found in my family tree and, um, and also it really turned out to be about the relationship between my mom and me where, you know, I looked at that string my great great aunts tied to their babies and wondered if there had been a string between my mom and me and I I kind of want it sometimes felt disconnected and that she couldn't hear me and I think I ultimately when I started the memoir I think it was really about whether my daughters would hear and and then when I by the time I finished I realized it was about whether I would hear them and um whether I could connect whether I would have a string which I wanted so badly to tie from my wrist to theirs and um but all of this was happening in my like very in my late 30s that I sort of became interested in writing and I eventually stopped teaching philosophy both to just be with my kids, but also because I really loved writing. And and then, I don't know, the memoir field is somewhat fraught. You know, I'm writing about my mom and it, it was just very personal. And I thought, you know, maybe fiction, <laughs> maybe fiction would be good. And, um, in, and in fact, because in the memoir, I couldn't really learn all that much about my great, great aunts other than that detail. And then some like sort of cold facts about how they landed in Brooklyn in the thirties and this and that, you know, just like a, a um, you know, a record this here and a record there. It was sort of cold and I ended up fictionalizing their narrative line anyway. And it was my first foray into fiction, which I really loved. And so I had tasted that um, in the memoir world. And then I tried with the Yellow Bird Sings to write a straight on novel. Um, yeah, so that was my trajectory. I came late. I didn't really know what I was doing. I was taking little workshops here and there. Um, you know, I went to the Iowa Summer Writing Festival for a week here and there when the kids were really young and I loved it very much. And then I would just take a craft class or something here and there. And I, I just loved the craft of writing. And I, you know, I just like to think about it and study it. So um, it kind of one thing led to another, really. Well, we're we're very glad that you uh, you discovered <laughs> it. <laughs> Thank um, you. What has been the reaction from family and and readers? Uh, to um, once we were home? I mean, it's been, it's been positive so far. <laughs> it's been about two weeks. And, um, you know, I, I feel like it's, it has a lot of resonance on a variety of different levels, which is, is nice. And um, I think that, you know, it is a bit of a dicey thing, this conversation, especially sort of within the world of Judaism, where, you know, 
as a you know you know as a response to the annihilation going in and taking some of these children back you know it wasn't always forcible some of it was negotiated and they offered money that was offered you know that was supplied sometimes by us organizations sometimes by you know organizations um you know in the two you know the eretz israel and stuff but um you know there is something about writing about exposing this kind of part of history that you know, feels fraught to me, but I also thought it was really important because the moral tension is there and we were, everyone was doing their best to try to, you know, reckon with what had happened and try to reconstitute in the best way possible. But I do find that it feels like a fraught subject matter, especially well, it as it's interwoven with other child takings, which are probably less morally blurry, like the church taking a child on the run, baptizing them after Jewish family, you know, tries to reclaim them is less blurry and the Germanization thing yeah. isn't blurry at all. But, um, but it's just interesting because, you know, each person in their standpoint believes in their righteousness, even though we can step back later and say that really probably was not the right thing to do. Well, I think, you know, I, I agree with you, uh, but it is, it is, it is important. It's important historically, but I think it, it has, it has resonance um, for today. The whole question of, you know, what is a family? And especially now with, you know, with DNA testing and everything, you know, people, um, I, I wonder, you know, some people rely so heavily on that, but, you know, is, is that really what a family is? Is the family, you know, your biological family or the family that raised and loved you? That, that's very timely question for today as well. Yeah, that's a great point. And also, you know, it's, an in, it's interesting because we think about things differently given the technologies we have. <laughs> you know, like you might think of your connectivity through DNA because you have DNA testing, but when you don't have DNA testing, you might think about it differently. And, um, you know, I thought about that a lot when it came to like reunification after the war, because, you know, today, and I needed to make that really clear in the Yellowbird Sings that, you know, there were very, you lost the thread of your identity when, if you're four years old and you're stowed in a new setting and told to forget your name and you never really knew your parents' name, you knew them as mama and papa, you didn't know mm -hmm. them as, you know, whatever this full name and, um, you know, and then trying to find your way back, um, you know, was incredibly difficult and it didn't, you know, didn't always happen and, um, and, you know, and it's true, like in a way, maybe you end up deciding that connectivity is who you meet on the boat ride and who you share Passover with every year and who you, you know, you know what I mean? Like your, your family becomes the family, you know, you find not the one you started with. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, especially for these young children who are stowed in these homes. I mean, some of those homes were like you were just a farmhand and it wasn't loving, but others, you know, these people were risking their lives and giving you the last bit of food they had and they loved them, you know, they loved these children. So it was a real mixed bag, um, you know, but for the ones who felt loved, I mean, it was it was very hard to be removed after especially the first rupture and now the second one yeah and and then you know you i'm just struck you know as a as a student of the holocaust myself and and you know a writer um how long the war went on for you know just it yeah. was a very long time in the life of a child in the life of 
everybody, but it's particularly in, in, in the life of children. Um, so our, our time is, is coming to a close, Jennifer. Uh, you mentioned you're working on a new project. Are you able to tell us anything about that? Or is it still a secret? I mean, if I can say anything coherent, I'm happy to share it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, yeah, then I'm trying to develop a new novel and um my goal is it's it is going to have it is going to be about deafness i'm returning to that subject matter and um i'm tr what i'm trying to do though is to really give you characters that you know you'll you'll strongly identify with and then launch what are the kind of different types of reasonings and mindsets which on all sides some some have validity and others really don't so like this is a very messy and fractious kind of political landscape and i think it's like a microcosm of our larger fraught and messy landscape and all the divides and the ways in which people like you know aren't really um like seeing the other's point of view and so it's an attempt at shining a light on like the complexity in that small world but i'm hoping it'll also be shedding light on on our sort of larger human you know, world that we're in you know all together it sounds uh, like a book that should be written and i i look forward to it uh from your expert hands uh so uh where can our listeners find you online <clears throat> well so i have a website that's um you know, it's jennifer-rosner.com. And then I'm on Facebook and I'm on Instagram and um, yeah. And I'm, I love to come to book clubs. And, and um, so if anyone, you know, would like someone, you know, happy to, ha you know, happy to come in and zoom in and, um, you know, discuss the novel if, if there are groups of people who want to talk about it. And so is there anything else you would like to share that we didn't cover? No, I loved talking to you and um, I so appreciate all these amazing questions and I'm so glad you enjoyed once we were home. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jennifer Rosner. Jennifer's new book is Once We Were Home. I also want to thank our executive producer, Pam Stack. People of the Book is a copyrighted presentation of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Please visit us and like our Facebook page, People of the Book. I'm your host, Meryl Ain, the author of The Takeaway Men. The sequel, Shadows We Carry, will be released on April 25th and will be available on Amazon and wherever books are sold. For more information about my books and writing, visit me at merylain.com. Until next time, please join us on Facebook at Jews Love to Read and read a good book.